The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In this episode, I sit down with Rob Lang of Farm One. Lang is perhaps best described as a farmer of the future. He's the CEO of a thriving hydroponic farm that specializes in growing rare and exotic herbs and greens right out of a building in downtown Manhattan. Although Farm One has only been around for about a year, they've already managed to grow hundreds of different crop varieties that have helped New York City's top chefs create flavor pairings that frankly most people never knew could even exist. But I talked to Rob about a whole lot more than just obscure herbs in this interview. Coming from the tech world, he has a very interesting and practical take on how this growing food technology could help our failing food system. Food is the new internet, so listen in to hear how the idyllic world of farming is being brought into the future. I'm here with uh, Rob Lang from Farm One. Firstly, Rob, thanks for making the trip um, uptown to our office here in the Upper West Side. I think it's uh, safe to say that you've probably traveled more miles than the greens that you produce in your farm travel to most of its customers. Yeah, that's probably true, I think. We're on 80th Street, and uh, yeah, most of our customers are pretty much downtown, 20-minute bike ride. Well, I, I must apologize to the environment for that. Yeah, no worries. It's good to be here, though. <laughs> so, you know, of course, we're going to dive deeper into Farm One and talk about everything from um, hydroponics to um, urban um, agriculture and the future of farming. But, you know, before we dive into all that good stuff, I, I want to start off with your um, background because I think you have a really fascinating and unusual one and what led you to where you are today where you run something like Farm One? Yeah so um, my parents are British uh, but I was born in Melbourne Australia Uh, moved back and forth between the UK and Australia a couple of times ended up in high school in Belgium, weirdly enough, uh, which as a teenager, if you're from the UK, it's like not an attractive place to be. But once I actually got there, it was amazing. And I went to an international school and had a really good time Um, and then ended up in design school in London. And that's kind of how I started my career. I was a graphic designer, went into web design, doing a lot of corporate branding, that kind of thing. Um, and then kind of got sick of London and ended up in Japan, in Tokyo, and I was there for eight years. Um, and what I was doing in Tokyo was I started a translation technology company called Gengo. Um, and that was like a kind of like a Silicon Valley startup in Japan. So, you know, it's all about the technology. We raised a bunch of money. We had VCs. Uh, we built, yeah, a pretty successful company is still going. Um, and then in uh, what was it 2015 I left that company and kind of had the opportunity to you know take some time out I'd been working on a company nonstop for eight years and you know as you as you can understand as well I think it kind of consumes your whole being Um, and I really wanted to kind of not think about work for about a year if I could you know and so I ended up 
um, you know, doing experimentation with food and kind of trying to explore that. And so that's sort of the beginning of, of how Farm One came about. So um, one of the things that happens, I think, to a lot of people when they do startups, and this happened to me while I was doing Gengo, was uh, you concentrate on the business mm-hmm. instead of yourself. And, and so I actually found myself eating a lot, like getting pretty unhealthy, also traveling a lot. Um, and so I was traveling back and forth between Tokyo and San Francisco. So that's like a 10, 11 hour flight. I was doing that every month, um, you know. And so if you don't have good habits to do with that kind of schedule, you're going to end up in a pretty unhealthy space. Um, and so that's kind of what happened to me at the end of Gengo. I was, you know, overweight and I was getting sick a lot of the time um, after I was traveling. And I kind of thought that that was inevitable. I think that a lot of people think, oh, okay, you know, you travel, you're probably going to get sick. But I kind of was looking for ways to, you know, maybe reduce the chance of me getting sick. And so I really switched to like a majority like whole food plant-based diet. And um, I lost a bunch of weight, but also I kind of managed to not get sick as often and had more energy and that kind of thing. So towards the end of that, you know, startup experience with Gengo, I knew that food was like a really, really important thing. Um, but I didn't know I was going to start a food based company or something like that. So it took a bunch of experimentation, like I was traveling around and then I sort of um, really wanted to learn more about how to make good food. So I actually took, I don't know if you're familiar with like Matthew Kenny. He's oh, yeah. like, yeah. So I took um, two month long, like plant-based cooking classes uh, with Matthew Kenny, which is now called Plant Lab, I guess. Uh, so I did one in Thailand and one in LA. And those kind of really opened my eyes to like how to cook with plants and how to really create really interesting, cool, like unusual, attractive food with plants. And so that kind of set me up to want to kind of take it to the next level. Wow. That's a, and that's a huge leap from (laughs) there to now running an indoor farm in, in, in a building in lower Manhattan. Um, but I see a lot of, um, in, in Farm One and what I've looked at, what the work that you're doing right now, I see a lot of uh, your your previous experience kind of seeping into it. If you, starting with the design aesthetic, um, if I think I highly encourage people to check out Farm One's Instagram. Um, I think what you do with just uh, leaves is pretty interesting. And I think a lot of... Um, uh, it just fits really well with um, the current focus on um, the aesthetic value of food and um, bringing that in, obviously, with the taste as well. Yeah. So why don't we talk about Farm One and how did uh, how did you end up in New York? And, um, you know, obviously you had an interest in cooking and uh, the and food and flavors. How did that lead to starting um, an indoor farm in, in Manhattan and... Yeah. Was, it, was it the tech that drew you, the food? What was the first thing that drew you in? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of things. You know, while I was doing those cooking classes and while I had a bit of time off, um, I knew that I loved food. And that's such a generic thing to say nowadays. Like everybody says they're a foodie. But I kind of, it was the one of the few things where I wake up in the morning and I'm kind of annoying. Like I'll, I'll say, where are we going to have lunch? Or, you know, if I'm going to visit a city, I'll kind of plan out where I'm going to eat beforehand. And that's pretty much the primary thing. And then maybe you can fit in like a museum around that or something. Um, so I knew that that was important to me. But I also kind of knew, you know, I'm not a chef. Like I don't have that skill set really i'm not um someone who thinks they can be a chef i don't i knew that wasn't that path wasn't for me um and i've always been kind of excited by technology and kind of interested with those in in those challenges you know so towards the uh end of 2015 i was kind of going like i'm really interested in the food i had I had been hanging around in farmers markets like in LA, in Australia, in Thailand, and I'd been lucky enough to kind of experience all these unusual ingredients. And I sort of, you know, I was I was very intrigued by that. So I I don't know if you've you know had the chance, but in in Santa Monica, for instance, like the farmers market there is amazing. And one week you might get something, and then the next week it's gone. And like that's even in the California sort of growing season, which is you know ideal for plants. And I, I thought, okay, on the one hand, that's pretty cool because it's 
that's what life's about you know seasons exist they're real but on the other hand i was intrigued with the idea of maybe taking that to the city and saying hey is there a way that we could have these interesting things year round in the middle of a city like new york where in february it's freezing and you know there's snow on the ground um and i had like had that first spark of an idea when i had been reading about i don't know if you you're sort of familiar with this but uh i knew that google and facebook had been kind of experimenting with this idea of having like a server farm so all those servers that are running like google drive or whatever having server farms that were in like a shipping container with the idea that you could just kind of pick one up and drop it in the middle of anywhere if you wanted to deploy a server in the middle of the desert or in iceland or whatever and so i was kind of thinking like oh could you do that maybe for a farm you know and so i kind of did a lot of research and i discovered that there were actually companies doing this kind of thing so there's a, a few great companies like freight farms for instance um that actually do sell shipping containers with farms inside them so i looked into that and then i realized like okay that's not someone's already doing that but that's not exactly what i want to do i want to actually grow that rare unusual produce and a particular example of those kind of ingredients that i was interested in was uh one of them my friend Sean actually who works at Matthew Kenny um he picked up this uh herb called papalo at the farmers market have you ever so come is, across is that a mexican herb yeah exactly mm-hmm. right great good knowledge not a lot of people know that so so papalo is used in these uh traditionally in sandwiches called semitas which are like uh the opposite of whole plant food they're like these pork and cheese fatty sandwiches but the papalo really kind of cuts through that fat and it's sort of like a cilantro type very fresh citrusy kind of grassy uh herb and i came across that and i'd never tasted it before and i was just like you know taken away by blown away by this thing and so i was thinking okay if i could try to grow things like papalo in the middle of new york city then that's pretty cool and and so you know i i did what kind of comes naturally to me which is i sit down on the laptop and i just do a bunch of research and so i kind of figured out oh if you want to do that then probably you need to use hydroponics and probably you need to use led lights and probably you know you need a controlled growing environment and that kind of stuff and so i kind of looked at it almost like um i was learning it from the ground up you know i had no experience of that like i'm not a farmer um weirdly enough my parents happened to have bought like a olive grove uh 15 years ago or something and so they sort of became farmers but we're not like from an agricultural background or anything like that um and so yeah i kind of viewed it as a tech challenge and you know a little bit like if you're putting together a software project you go like okay well i'm going to need a system to do this and i need a system to do that um and that's kind of how i approached this whole problem um and then you know from that design angle i think that you know if if your listeners have ever seen you know because because of the culinary classes that i had taken i had taken those partly because they are very visually impressive like if you look at the food that Matthew Kenny and his team do at Plant Food and Wine in LA or Double Zero here in New York City or uh Plant Food in in Miami uh a lot of what he does and what Scott Weingard who's the executive chef like what they do is beautiful and what they've done is made plant food visually impressive and exquisite and kind of a luxury experience by using you know great ingredients great plating and also like a lot of flowers and that kind of stuff and so I had got interested in you know growing food that was visually impressive as well and 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 so I knew that if I started something like this like like farm 1 what it became to be uh that visual aspect of the ingredients was you know almost as important as the taste great so why don't you tell us what what farm 1 does for people who are not familiar with farm 1 your the way you grow your greens and um who your customers are right now and perhaps who you expected to be down the line. Yeah, sure. So Farm 1 is an indoor urban farm. Uh we currently have one location in downtown Manhattan. We're about to open two. Um and we grow rare herbs, edible flowers, we grow microgreens, rare produce, uh mostly for chefs in New York City. And so 
Um, Papalo, for instance, might be one of our products. Uh, and a lot of the chefs that we sell to are really at the very high end. So they've got Michelin star establishments, they're doing tasting menus, they're doing very delicate dishes, they're doing experimental dishes where they want to get access to unusual ingredients, uh, but they need access to those things year round. And so in New York City, obviously the climate fluctuates all the time, but um, Farm One grows indoors under LED lights. And so we completely control the environment that the plants grow in, meaning that you can have a reliable crop year round. Uh, we use hydroponics. So that's a technology using a water-based nutrient solution for the plants. Um, it doesn't use soil at all. One of the attractions of hydroponics is it's a very efficient way to, work, to grow plants. Um, it's great for growing indoors because it's very clean. Uh, and it's also uh, you know, pretty sustainable in terms of its water usage. So instead of a traditional farm where you're kind of spraying water on the ground or it's, a lot of it's being lost, uh, in hydroponics, you recirculate that water mostly. So depending on how you measure it, you may be saving between 90 to 95% uh, of the water of a traditional farm. Uh, we grow under LED lights, as I said, and those lights uh, effectively mimic sunlight. Um, but what we can do, because we can control everything, uh, is we can give the plants 18 hours of sunlight a day. So we can give it a kind of perfect summer's day every day. Uh, we can put a gentle breeze across the plants with some fans. Uh, we obviously make sure there's no pests in the room uh, through prevention, mostly. Um, and obviously the plants have no danger of being damaged by animals or rain or anything like that. So for chefs who are looking for exquisite produce, uh, it's a great way to guarantee that we can give them that. And obviously you don't use pesticides, herbicides. You can potentially, the food waste is minimal or probably composted or reused. And um, how about the where do you source your seeds from for I mean, you seem to be growing things that typically one would not have access to in in new york city unless it was shipped or it flew across the world um what's your approach to that yeah so two things just going back to the pesticides point um yeah absolutely we grow things so that you can effectively just pick them off the plant and eat them and that's what we do you know we my team and i do that uh we give tasting tours to people and people do that so the whole point is we're not spraying there's no herbicides um the only methods of pest control that we really use are prevention and that's 90 percent of what we do is we try to keep pests from just coming in um, and then also we have beneficial insects. And so we have some ladybugs, we have lace wings, we have a few other kinds of beneficial insects that will eat things like aphids and thrips and things. So it's a very sort of um, very careful method of pest control uh, and it's, it's very, very clean. Um, and then when it comes to the seeds, yeah, really, you know, the past year, we started just over a year ago. Uh, we installed in about April 2016. Um, the past year has been this kind of awesome experience of like, it's like going into a candy store and kind of seeing everything you, that you want and adding it to your basket, you know, uh, because we started out with an initial selection of crops that we thought were kind of interesting. And it was only about 10 or 11 different crops. Um, and almost every week since we've started, we've added something like a, a chef has requested something or we've gone to buy some seeds and then you know, on the website, there's something else. And it's like, what about trying this? You know, or someone will come into the farm and they'll say, oh, I used to eat this as a kid. Or someone will literally come over from another country or they'll say, hey, I brought you these seeds. I noticed you do on demand, uh, you grow things on demand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so part of that reason that we've been ordering all these seeds is that people say, like chefs will literally say, oh, I used to be able to get this back in Denmark. Can you grow it for me? And so like we'll, we'll search seeds for those people. Uh, but yeah, like we're in, uh, we're in a very small space. Our initial farm is not very big. It's, you know, uh, about 300 square feet. It's inside a culinary school. So it's inside the Institute of Culinary Education. Um, it means that because it's such a small farm, we have to be very, very careful about the real estate that we use, right? So almost every square inch on that farm has to be, you know, carefully planted. And so, yeah, we grow on demand. So we'll say to a chef, hey, what do you want? Uh, and if it's like a microgreen, 
Uh, maybe that'll take two weeks from seed to harvest. If it's something more mature, it might take six to eight weeks. Um, and generally we'll, we'll work with those chefs and say, hey, okay, we'll grow out a certain uh, amount for you. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like on demand. So it's kind of just in time uh, lean manufacturing for, for plants. Yeah. Interesting. And so just for listeners who may not be familiar with um, the, the types of indoor farming that are out there, because there seem to be so many different terminologies. So you mentioned hydroponics, which, which involves um, using water. Um, I've also heard about aeroponics and there's aquaponics as well. Uh, maybe can you just clarify some of the terminology before we kind of go deeper into these issues? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, this whole space has kind of blown up over the past few years, even over the past two years. It's, it's really interesting. And a lot of this technological advancement and kind of interest in the space has come from the cannabis world, you know, because hydroponics has been a great way to grow some weed in your basement secretly. Like that's, that's kind of where a lot of people come across it. And so even today we have like three Michelin star chefs who come into our room and say, oh, but where's the weed, you know? So because a lot of this equipment comes from that world. So hydroponics in some forms, it's been around for actually quite a long time. The idea that you have a nutrient solution and the, and the plants sitting in something that allows it to grow roots, uh, that's the hydroponic concept. And there's, you know, dozens of ways that you can effectively do that on a mechanical basis, but probably uh, one, of the, one of the most common ways might be called flood and drain, where you have a reservoir at the bottom full of this nutrient solution, and then you'll have a tray or multiple trays full of your plants, and periodically that water will flow up uh, and then flow down again. Uh, so the plants has, have access to some nutrient solution, but then also access to, not, to oxygen. So important principle in a lot of these systems is the roots have to get the nutrients, they have to have some structure, but also they have to have access to oxygen as well, because you can't just have a plant sitting in water. It's going gonna, it's gonna to die. So flood and drain is one type of hydroponics, and then you might hear about NFT, which is like a channel where the water will be flowing down it, along it, sort of, they're nearly horizontal. Um, and then you might have something like deep water culture, which is where you'll have a tray and a raft on top where the plants will sit and they'll have uh, some space around the roots normally uh, to get some air. But there's, you might come across like 10 different ways of doing hydroponics. And I'm sure right now someone is at home designing some new method of hydroponics. Uh, aeroponics is a slight adaptation on that. It's more like a fine mist of spray of nutrients onto roots. Um, and it can be attractive because it can allow the roots to grow more quickly and the plants to grow more quickly. It becomes a slightly complex technology. It's almost like a fuel injection in a car, if you remember that. Um, and so some companies like Aero Farms, which is building or has built a huge facility in uh, New Jersey, they have got some kind of patent on an aeroponic system. Um, and then you'll come across maybe as well fogponics. Uh, that's like a, another new technique. And that, that is a way of using, if you, if you have one of those uh, essential oil dif diffusers, mm -hmm, <laughs> there's a technology there. Yeah, so that you have these... Um, I'm losing the word right now, but you'll be able to create a mist out of a liquid. And so using that same sort of technology, you can do what's called fogponics, where you've got that mist, which will surround the root structure of the plant. Um, and then... Uh, and the, ascent, the basic idea is that you're delivering the nutrients that um, the plant needs. And yeah. you know, soil is... Well, some people may think soil is important for growing uh, plants. It performs a function really it holds the plant together and it's a delivery mechanism for minerals to the plant which you can take out soil from the equation and still deliver the right nutrients to the roots and create the right environment of course that's why you have the lights and other things right. so you can you can do that i think that um it's it's probably a mistake to get too simplistic about it like soil does many things right it provides structure it has nutrients it's a home for bacteria it's a home for fungi 
Um, and so hydroponics in its simplest form will provide those nutrients and provide structure. I think what we do and what other growers will do is find other ways of also perhaps introducing beneficial bacteria and fungi onto the roots. And so I, um, I think over the next 10, 20 years is when we're going to really start to learn a bit more about how we can really control uh, those extra elements because uh, there's a lot, the soil does a lot and I, I, I never think we should minimize its, its role. Um, and then the, the last sort of uh, way of growing that you might have heard about is this aquaponics, right? So really the principle there is that you're using a fish uh, or an ecosystem with some kind of uh, water-based life in it uh, to create nutrients for your plants. And then the plants may then in turn feed that, that ecosystem. Um, it, I'm not a proponent of it. People, there's a, a great company called uh, Eden Works that mm, exists in Brooklyn, in, right? Yeah, yeah, and they're doing some really exciting stuff with that technology. Um, it's not, it's not really something that Farm One uses, but um, you know, there's there's some exciting work being done there. Yeah, cool. So, the way you see it in terms of um, farming indoors and and your view of what Farm One is doing versus, as you mentioned, this there seems to be a lot of hype and, and excitement in the space right now. From um, what do you think are the biggest benefits? Of, you know, you can if you just look at sustainability, there are obviously some clear ones, and we touched upon some of them. You kind of touched on the fact that you can grow things that you typically would not have access to in places like New York City or, or anywhere in America, for that matter, and. So there's a taste element to it as well. Um, what what do you think are the the leading drivers for this being touted as being potentially a way to feed growing urban populations in the years ahead? Because if you look at the research, you know the we're supposed to produce. I think it's the UN that said we need to produce seventy percent more food in the next forty years if we are to feed the nine point seven billion people that'll be on this planet by twenty fifty, and to do that, we're going to need 50% more land. We don't have that land. Most of our land is used up right now, majority of it in um, industrial animal agriculture. So there's this huge promise of um, the idea that as people migrate to urban environments as well, which is supposed to go up, I think, 70% by 2050, we could set up these, as you pointed out, containers um, in old warehouses or, you know, run down factories and convert them into these farms. What is, what is the promise versus the peril of this? Is the technology there? Is it, you know, it all sounds, I, I, I love the technology behind it because it seems like technology can kind of solve anything. I tend to be an optimist when it comes to yeah. technology. Yeah. But at the same time, I know, I, I know that a lot of companies in this space have, have experienced some challenges in terms of scaling. Um, maybe you can talk, if you can talk to some of the advantages versus some of the challenges of, of just doing this and, uh, and then perhaps you can get into how this can be scaled. Yeah, that's a huge question, a huge question. topic. <laughs> I think, um, you know, the broad way that I look at some of these issues is that, you know, if you look back maybe 50, 60, 70 years ago, uh, the crisis and the way it was sort of solved was to produce more food, you know, just to go like, okay, how can we maximize production by selecting varieties that will have high yield by converting larger uh, areas of farmland to single crops, you know, things like that. And I think that now, you know, the solution for the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years might have to be more around what do we grow and like how do we grow it and where do we grow it you know what's the distribution method for that because i think fundamentally if you look at one of the one of the problems with people not having enough food in the world is is not really so much that we're not growing enough it's not it's that it's not grown in the right place or it's not distributed effectively or it's the wrong kind of food and you know as you alluded to with animal agriculture, for instance, you know, huge amounts of land in probably the wrong places are devoted to growing soy and grow, devoted to, you know, livestock feed and that kind of thing. So um, urban farming as a as a movement and as something that we're part of, I think is part of that solution of maybe being a bit smarter about where we produce our food and what kind of food we produce. Um, and I think that, you know, farm one, 
we're like a tiny, tiny, tiny company and we're trying to do something that's really at the top end of the market right now. Um, but if you look at us as part of the maybe bigger movement of vertical farming, indoor farming, urban agriculture, um, one of the sort of popular books in that movement uh, was the book The Vertical Farm by Dixon Despommier, uh, which I think, I think, you know, really served as inspiration for quite a few people to say, hey, actually, the cities can be places where we produce food, can be places where greenery is in abundance places where we don't just think about building concrete tower blocks that actually we think about okay how do we get uh, green and uh, vibrant things into the space where we all live and so i think that sort of created a lot of excitement um i think that on the other hand it would be unwise to kind of make a sweeping statement like urban agriculture is going to be the solution to all these problems. I don't think it is. Um, I think that urban agriculture is a solution to part of the problem in, in specific circumstances. And one of the things that we as consumers who are quite separated now from our food production, you know, we go into the store and we buy something off the shelf and it doesn't it's not really it might say where it comes from but we're so separated from how it was grown and how it was packed and distributed i think we forget how many different kinds of agriculture there are sometimes you know if you're growing grains it's a completely different way of growing to growing mushrooms and then you know yeah if you if you do eat meat and dairy like that's a completely type different type of agriculture olive farming is completely different and so urban agriculture with our current technology around hydroponics led lights that kind of thing it's very well suited to growing herbs and leafy greens uh it's not very well suited to growing grains or growing fruit most of the time and so that's where you'll see a lot of the companies that are around right now uh focusing is doing those salad greens and so uh you can look at uh you know even what we're doing we're growing herbs we're growing some edible flowers uh we're not really trying to grow like luxury fruit uh because you know, really that would take normally several years for a plant to start to bear fruit. Uh, in terms of an economic equation, it doesn't really make sense for us because, you know, rent is expensive in New York City and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's leafy greens and herbs and that kind of thing. And so as long as you, you know, as a proponent of urban agriculture, as long as you, you know, start to say we can do these things, but be realistic about it, then I think it has this great place, which is like for, for a lot of cities, the consumption of the leafy greens that they go through, a lot of it can be produced in the city. And there are some really nice advantages to doing that. And I think one of them, which is you know really hard to measure, but I think it's important, is having that closer connection to you know how your food is produced. And you know, farming can have so many externalities to it that you know it's one of these things where if you push it out so it's in the middle of nowhere and it's far from you you kind of, you know, you don't have to think about whether or not it has pesticides or runoff, or you don't have to think about if the worker who is picking your strawberries is actually paid a fair wage or, or has to live in terrible conditions, or you don't really have to think about, you know, how it was trucked over here or whether it sat in a warehouse for a week and that kind of thing. Whereas if you can bring that kind of activity into the city, then you are forced to confront that or you are encouraged to support something that's actually a lot more beneficial. And I think that um, you know, we're part of that, obviously, uh, but people like Square Roots, uh, who have, are doing these container farms in Brooklyn with a bunch of entrepreneurs growing leafy greens and herbs, that's a great way of like showing this is how this stuff can be grown. This is what it looks like. Here is the farmer. Hello, like you can meet them. And I think that kind of thing is, is a really good sort of um it's a broad stroke of of showing how you know food production can be part of the city and and can be good for that and then there are other obvious things like you know reducing food miles uh like reducing pesticide re uh, use like uh reducing storage costs i think like that's one of the things that i didn't even really think about before i got into but the fact that we're right downtown and we can deliver in 20 minutes means i don't have to have a cold storage room because we just cut and then we deliver and does know? that also impact how you can grow things because i mean i i was reading how um 
most of the, the lettuce or other greens you typically get in a grocery store have been hybridized or engineered to to survive long miles, which is why it, it they even don't taste as good as right. uh, something that you could probably get uh, locally. Um, and some of them, uh, the miles also tend to ruin the nutritional value of the food. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, there's there's those advantages as well, plus the fact that you can grow no matter what the weather is. But, you know, to shift gears a little bit, I'd, I'd like to get your take on, because I, I don't want people to take away from this that this is just an urban New York City, San Francisco, L.A. thing. What are your thoughts on um, the uh, urban agriculture um, hopefully solving one of the other big problems you're facing in the U.S. is people lack access to fresh food and, and food deserts. And um, is that something that you see this form of farming making, a, I can't say fixing it in the, in the next few years, but at least trying to make some headway in terms of solving that problem? Yeah, I think, that's, I think it's a key part. Um, and I think that if you look at where we are now, obviously we're at the beginning of this movement. You know, uh, we've got a few companies in New York City doing it. We've got a few companies in the Bay Area. We've got some uh, worldwide, but it's definitely the beginning. And I think one of the reasons it's still the beginning is a lot of this technology is still quite expensive. You know, LED lights are not cheap to set up a, uh, a system that might grow 100 pounds of produce a month. You know, you're talking close to $10,000 or something like that. So it's a significant investment. Um, and people are still sort of figuring out how it all works. So we're, we're definitely at the first generation. Now, if you look at the price of LED lighting, uh, it's similar to solar in the, in the fact that it's constantly going down and it's sort of halving every four years or so. So it becomes quite exciting over a 10 year period, you know, that system that costs $10,000 right now might be more like $1,000 or $2,000 in a few years time. Um, and that opens this up to a lot more people. And it opens this up to people who uh, are not really startups anymore. They're just people who maybe run the bodega or they maybe run a bunch of food carts and they can actually start to grow in the middle of the city. And I love that kind of stuff because it's tremendously empowering just as being able to generate your own solar power um, is empowering. You don't have to be beholden to the utility company anymore. You can be off grid, you can be uh, anywhere. Um, the same thing can happen with urban farming. So in those uh, communities, whether or not it's in a city, it could just be in Alaska in the middle of winter, you know, cut off from somewhere else. That's another place where it can be a food desert. Um, yeah, this kind of urban indoor farming technology can really help. And, you know, over time as well, as that cost of equipment goes down and as we expect to move towards more renewable sources of electricity, then the ability to grow things beyond leafy greens starts to increase as well. And so I don't, you know, I'm still one of those people who doesn't think we're going to grow everything this way. But, you know, in 10 or 20 years time for more kind of areas in the city to have these things in basements and unused spaces in the city or on, on uh, rooftops, I think it's going to become really common. Um, and that, it, you know, it's a huge part of the solution. Um, and again, I don't think it's, I don't think it's smart. I don't think it's right for urban agriculture advocates to say it's going to solve everything, but I think it's a really exciting part. And it, and when you have food production in a community, that community has more power has more self-respect has more ownership of you know what it consumes uh the fact that leafy grains are one of the healthiest most nutrition packed um you know foods that we can eat certainly helps a lot so i i think that's really exciting and it's it's part of that overall solution yeah the way i look at it i mean what people need to hear is that if you want to eat in a way that can feel feed the planet you're going to have to cut down on on meat consumption because majority of meat that's produced today is factory farm meat um, that's a given you're going to have to embrace plant-based foods now while that seems pretty simplistic when people choose that then the question is what plant-based foods well how and how are we going to get everyone access to plant foods that are hopefully grown sustainably so you don't end up with a new problem now and all, that are you know healthy and and nutritious and so urban farming can play a key role then in potentially providing people with, with 
the kind of healthy, nutritious food that they would need if they were now shifting their diets away from predominantly factory farm junk food to something that's hopefully better tasting and nutritious and good for their health in the long run. Yeah, I think that, again, that's it's a huge topic, right? Like what do people put in their mouths, in their grocery baskets? Um, I, I'm always inspired when I go to the farmer's market, right? Like one of the, the funny thing is what we're doing could, see, could be seen as like opposite to that, like the Union Square farmer's market, but I love it. And, you know, you, it attracts all these farms from around the city and you get amazing produce and you get to meet the farmers. And I would really defy anyone to go there and not have like a good time and get excited about food, right? But I think one of the realities is that we're all pretty busy and we can't always go there and we have to shop wherever is closest to us. And so we don't, we, we just can't fit that experience into our everyday lives. And so um, one of the best things I think we can do in the spirit of that is just get people excited about great food and make the definition of great great food not like a really expensive steak but actually a really beautiful piece of produce that tastes amazing you know and so um one of the things that farm one like that we hope to do is to just get people excited and open their eyes to the range of amazing produce that is out there like one of the one of the coolest things that i get to do many times a week is bring someone into the farm and they'll taste like anise hyssop or they'll taste like a fennel crown or they'll taste purple oxalis or they'll taste um, pluto basil right all of which are things that they've actually probably never had before you know and and that in a way i i just feel like that's such a that's an exciting way to have a culinary experience and it's obviously way healthier and way more sustainable than it is to go and like find the most expensive Kobe beef or something, you know? And I, and so I think that, um, as we know, it's really hard to tell people, oh, you shouldn't have that. Like you shouldn't be doing this. It's much, much more attractive and more effective to say, Hey, this is really cool. You could have this and this and this, and your plate could look amazing and colorful and full of flowers. And after eating it, you could feel great and you could find flavor pairings that you didn't even know existed. And like that, I think is the route to, um, getting people to eat more sustainably and also just getting people more engaged with their food. If you look at the percentage of people's income that they spend on their food now compared to you know 100 years ago or so the percentage of our incomes that we spend on food is so low now compared to you know other countries especially like if you look at italy and france it's because people kind of have been trained not to care that much about the food and kind of trained to expect to get what they need for very very cheap and i think that we, we have to regenerate that excitement about food and we and we can direct it in a way that I think is helpful for everyone. And, you know, personally, I don't eat meat and dairy. I'm like, I'm uh, all plant-based. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a struggle to get everyone to be that way. But I think one of the most inspiring things and the way, one of the things that pushed me to go that way was proving that this food can be amazing. It can be beautiful and it can taste great. And uh, that just makes it so much easier. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you tell someone cut out your favorite foods and um, and move to eating um, salads, and then you give them a salad that is that has absolutely no taste is not really a very empowering way to get someone to right. to see the light when it comes to food choices. I, I kind of hate the word salad to be <laughs> honest because salad so many times it means some iceberg lettuce, it means like corn from a can. And it means, uh, you know, some kind of crappy dressing. And I just go like, that's not, that's not what I want to eat. And so, you know, if you tell someone you're vegan or something and then they say, oh, do you only eat salads? It's the most depressing conversation. Because there's so many other cool things out there and you can have this like amazing, really umami mushroom ramen or something like that. That's like the complete opposite of a salad. And so I almost... I just, I don't like the word salad sometimes. <laughs> I agree. I, I don't like bland salads either. So. And so in terms of what Farm One and how you you mentioned, I think of you as being part of this ecosystem of urban farming, indoor farming, vertical farming, whatever terminology we choose to use, that includes companies. You're sort of the more unique one where you your current customer base seems to be just high-end chefs. But... 
you also have, as you mentioned, you mentioned Aero Farms, which um, has a huge facility not too far from here in New Jersey, and I, yeah. I believe are now expanding to a newer one. Um, and they're getting some tax breaks from the state of New Jersey, which is good to hear for yeah. a change um, when it comes to produce. Um, and there's there's other big startups that have been getting a lot of uh, attention, Plenty, which is based in the Bay Area. They seem to be going with the focus of scaling up um, indoor farming so they, they can supply to, a, I believe, I think a 50-mile radius near where their farms are located. They're exciting because they, they're they looking at solving a big problem and they're looking at you know being able to do this across the country and hopefully uh, power urban areas with fresh and fresh produce. But there's other smaller parts of the ecosystem. You form one part of it. Um, I've also heard about, and maybe not in the US, but I've heard about this company in Germany. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, they are trying to put hydroponic systems into grocery stores where you can actually see the produce being grown and then and yeah. buy it, which yeah. I think is a unique and interesting idea. Back to your point of helping people connect with where their food grows right. uh, and understand that a little bit better. And then, there, of course, there are co- companies trying to do systems that you can use at home. Um, and that's undoubtedly a market, a great way, if nothing else, to teach people the joy of growing something and uh, and hopefully then make them a little bit more curious when they go to the grocery store and pick something up. So what are your thoughts on the, the different little players in the space and perhaps there's others out there too? Um, yeah. And where does Farm One fit in now and where do you see it fitting in down the line? Yeah, well, when I looked at Farm One and you know, starting a business in this space, um, I kind of looked at the resources at my disposal, which were not, you know, I didn't have millions of dollars to play with. Um, The more I looked at it, the more I thought, oh, I'd better start something really small. And if I'm going to start something really small, uh, I probably want to be selling at the high end of the market. And, And so that kind of pushed me towards that. Uh, piece and I, I've been very conscious of the fact that Farm One is serving a niche, and you know certainly for the short term, uh, probably the medium term, that's you know it's a market that I think is big enough for us to have an interesting business, but it's probably not the market size that a VC uh, who's looking for like a billion dollar exit uh, is going to be that interested in. Whereas the companies like Plenty. Uh, like Aero Farms, uh, like Farmed Here, which is now defunct, but you know they were going after that market. Uh, also Bowery, um, those guys are going after that market. Um, and the scale of the leafy greens market in the US, you know, it's billions of dollars. It's only going to get bigger. Um, it's certainly an attractive market for a venture capital investment. Um, but it comes with that baggage of well as well that is it's a huge market right and so a there's existing players who have you know some pretty entrenched positions uh, b you know it's there's huge problems to solve there around production efic- efficiency around distribution around partnerships with uh, you know the big supermarket chains there's big 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 problems to solve there and so these guys i can understand why they're going after that market um but also there's some big challenges ahead and so whoever can capture big chunks of that market has a huge reward ahead of them um but it will be very competitive and you'll definitely see a few of those players drop out i think that one of the things that consumers or we all forget sometimes and i think that has that was driven home in a very beautiful visual way was I think it was the New York Times did this very this beautiful photo essay on the scale of US agriculture and so if you look that up like New York Times photos agriculture you can just see the immensity of you know even there's a great photo of a truck full of carrots being the whole truck being tipped up at an angle and all these carrots being you know uh, falling down onto a conveyor belt and that being probably just one portion of one day's supply of one part of the world you know and so the the challenge for aero farms and bowery and plenty is to scale to an immense capacity and i think that one of the 
tricky things about urban agriculture, indoor farming, vertical farming, is that you're farming in this completely different way from before. So you don't have single layers, you've got multiple layers. And so aero farms, I don't know exactly how tall they are, but they're probably at least 12, maybe 16 layers high. You see um, people on like cherry pickers, you know, those, those expanding legs going up and down the rows. Uh, you see people trying other ways of accessing these stacks. Um, because you know part of the appeal of vertical farming is that you can stack multiple layers in one building um, but people are just figuring out like how do you harvest this stuff and people are doing it very inefficiently now because they're still figuring out these problems and so if you look at their operational cost compared to a farm in mexico or in california that has been doing this for years which has dedicated machinery to go down a row and pick like a thousand heads of lettuce in 20 seconds you know they're up against some huge challenges and that's why uh, some of these companies have failed because you know they'll be selling a head of lettuce for a dollar fifty and they'll be costing two dollars fifteen to produce it and that's not a sustainable business so so you're going to see companies having to figure that out and they will figure it out. I think, you know, there's obviously more automation that's coming in. There's going to be some best practices that are developed, but it's going to be, um, yeah, an interesting space over the next few years. And a lot of those problems to solve are not really about like LED technology or aeroponics. They're actually about handling and operations and like Toyota production system kind of stuff. Um, and I think it's incredibly interesting as a space um, and you can see why VCs are interested. Um, but you know, big, big problems to solve. Interesting. Wow. And what, what do you see farm one's evolution? Do you have, um, a clear path forward? And you, you mentioned you're expanding. Is the focus going to be on restaurants high end and, um, where do you see that going? Yeah, absolutely. So our first space at the Institute of Culinary Education was designed as a prototype. You know, we wanted to answer, can we grow high quality things? The answer has been resoundingly yes. You know, we have some of the best chefs in the city using our produce. Um, we have a small space, so we only have about 10 chef customers, but they have between them about 11 Michelin stars. So we're very confident in the quality of the produce. Um, we also wanted to test out, can we deliver, uh, you know, we deliver on bike and subway. We have like the big backpacks that look like the Postmates, DoorDash delivery guys. Uh, that absolutely works. Uh, we use reusable packaging with our customers. So they keep the packaging for a week. We come and pick it up on the way back. So no waste. Uh, so we've solved a lot of those things and we know how to harvest all that kind of thing. And so, um, now we're scaling into a bigger facility in Tribeca that's about six times the size of what we've had. It's about 1,200 square feet. Uh, that facility is going to be um, also serving restaurant customers. So that's still our core market. Uh, we can sell to consumers online. So you can buy online at farm.one. Uh, but our biggest market is those chefs. Uh, we also do... Uh, tours of the farm so you can have a glass of Prosecco and you can taste like a hundred different herbs and edible flowers and that's really fun it's like a cool sort of version of a wine tasting tour but uh, but very healthy and green and unique um, and then the vision for us is really that we want to have multiple farms and so we don't want to have the biggest farm in the world we want to have the best farms and so if in four years time if we had like 10 farms across different cities in the US or the world uh, that would be fantastic. And really our targets are cities where the climate is extreme, perhaps, you know, like could be something like Chicago, you know, uh, or it could be something like Dubai where there's, you know, huge water problems. Um, or it could be just cities where the restaurant density is really high. Um, and and that, you know, it's, it's going to be sort of the first stage of farm one. And then I think that, you know, as we develop these practices for urban farming in small spaces, you know, we're using these kind of underused spaces like restaurant basements and, you know, places where people struggle to rent out their property. Um, as we get good at farming in those spaces, I think it's, you know, it's possible for us to move into a slightly more accessible product range that's more affordable. Uh, you know, we're kind of, as many people do with new technologies, we're coming in at the high end and then we may be able to kind of diffuse down uh, to kind of the everyday. 
Um, but yeah, you know, we're super excited about the future and we've had such, I'm, I'm just so happy about the feedback that we get on the quality of the produce that we really, um, we're excited to spread it. And we have international visitors who come and tour the farm, you know, literally today before I came, we had visitors from Germany who came and tasted and, and it's just it's such a pleasurable thing to and you run classes too is that the, is yeah. there a reason for that do you want to just so that people can understand the technology yeah taste the food is is what's what's the driver for that i can't imagine that's a big that's necessarily the biggest part of your business but um no it's not but i think it's you know it's one of these things the reason why we have the tours with the prosecco is that we always had people saying can i have a tour and after a while we were like okay well we have to charge for this because at the moment i'm spending my whole life giving tours and it's kind of the same with the classes because people come in and they're like oh i want to do this at home i want to try this and so um we do uh, a three-hour intro to indoor farming class it's designed for people who know nothing like so you can come in we'll teach you how to plant a seed how to transplant it how to harvest it so that the plant can still grow um you know ways of working with seeds that kind of thing um and our farm manager david does those classes and he's fantastic he's so patient he's like really really knowledgeable and we get people coming in from all angles on that class so a lot of people are interested in doing this stuff at home. And I think one of the great things about hydroponics is it's very accessible. It's pretty easy to start. If you do things like the right way, it will work as opposed to, you know, we've all been there like planting a plant in the soil. And then we're like, why did that die? And, you know, the answer could be the soil is wrong. We've tried that in our office unsuccessfully. Right. Well, you guys should be. You know, <laughs> I think I'm going to come, come for that class. Right. Right. And, the you know, you can come for the class. There's, there's systems that you can put together yourself. Um, there's lots of companies now with Kickstarters or like real companies that are doing like little home systems with apps and everything that you exactly. can track stuff. Yeah. And I think, again, it's like one of these cool things where, you know, the end result is probably you're not going to grow like 50 pounds of basil, yeah. but uh, what you're going to have is more connection to your food, you know? And so um, some of the systems that we like, uh, there's a really nice one that does uh, just microgreens. Um, and so it has the sort of, uh, tray of micros which are great for um, you know putting in salads super nutritious there's one called hamama uh, which is h-a-m-a-m-a -A -A. that's a really that's one we've tested out a bit we quite like that one there's also click and grow which has like the full plant and then the light on top there's ava ava um, there's a few systems and you know there's only going to be more like every week there's some new kickstarter with some new led based system but yeah it's it's a cool time uh, for this tech that's very exciting and i guess i'm i guess that's a good uh, segue to something that i i guess i didn't cover which is the the tech aspect of this which does tend to get talked a lot about in the press in terms of um, everything from big data to um, how computers has transformed uh, indoor farming to even robotics. Um, I believe there's a company in Japan that has a largely automated uh, indoor farm um, run by, and I think where the human input is only for one process in the uh, from from the point where the seed is put in till the uh, till the harvest. Really, yeah. Um, what is um, What's exciting? I mean, of course, we can we can do a whole separate podcast just on that <laughs> technology. But what's um, what's the most exciting new developments you've noticed or seen, and is that going to help solve some of these challenges of scaling up and competing with uh, traditional farming um, and bringing this um, technology really of uh, of of using you know of growing things but using the power of computers and and data and sensors and yeah. uh, being able to control the temperatures as you pointed out and knowing exactly when their leaf is spotted or curved and things like that where do you see that going and playing a factor in the future yeah well i i think that one of the things that attracts uh, a lot of techie type people to this whole world is this idea that you can completely control the growing environment right and i think that a lot of uh, you know, I used to be a programmer, so I count myself in this in this cohort, but there's a lot of sort of programmer mindsets, which are kind of 
uh, scared of like the real world, you know, like a real farm, like an outdoor farm, it's messy and it's dirty and there's a bucket over there and you don't know what's in it. And, you know, uh, and so people love this idea that you have a kind of growth chamber and you can control everything. And, um, you know, I, in various ways, farm one is off, is a little bit different to that in that we grow so many different types of crops. I mean, at any one time we have about 120 different crops growing in, in that room. We've grown about 300 different ones in the past year. And so for us, a lot of these uh, pieces of technology around it, automation and robotics are not really applicable to us because every plant has a different way of harvesting, a different life cycle, etc. But where you will see a lot of these robotics and automation are in the single crop uh, or just a few crop. Uh, types of farms and so uh, I think you might be referring to spread in Japan yeah. which uh, grows a lot of left lettuce uh, heads of lettuce leafy greens and so yes they are able to automate because those crops are pretty reliably uniform like one head of lettuce is going to grow in a very similar way to another and so um, they have made a lot of progress I think you'll see some US companies making a lot of progress with that kind of automation over the next few years frankly for some of those vertical farms that is the only way they're going to be able to have an affordable product is by automating um, so I expect to see it um, you know there's maybe two other areas where you'll see a lot of technology um, on the larger scale um, you know the, the environment control in terms of humidity and temperature and that kind of thing, that's a pretty established area. I think where you'll see some advances over the next few years is actually just bringing the sophistication of some of the more expensive traditional greenhouse systems into kind of home products. And you're seeing various like Wi-Fi units and uh, units like in a smart home where you've got like a humidity center and then you've got something else. So you'll see some of those products um, come and become more of a prosumer consumer kind of access level. And then um, I think, you know, lighting and LEDs is still a really evolving tech. And uh, there's companies like Fluence uh, in the US and Philips uh, in the Netherlands who are really still quite rapidly evolving their product range around LEDs. So we're seeing that price come down for LEDs, but we're also seeing um, the quality of the products change and you know specific lighting ranges for specific crops. And so if you know, for instance, that you're only growing spinach, then theoretically there is a best quality of light for that spinach at every stage of the life cycle. So from seed to harvest, you might be changing the color of the light, the different spectrum and different strengths. And so companies like Fluence and Philips are trying to build product ranges that allow growers to have exactly the right light for exactly the right stage in the life cycle. And so, um, so yeah, there's a lot of tech to develop. I think the probably the last piece and the piece that kind of affects us the most is actually just managing farms and you know we have built a lot of technology around managing like thousands of batches of crops at any one time and trying to track down where is where is the wasabi arugula and how old is it and what should it look like at this stage and we've done a lot of work on that um, that's very specific to our situation but you have companies like Agrilist which is also a New York based company that helps a variety of indoor growers to manage their space in terms of the data and all those inputs so yeah it's a, it's a really cool kind of ecosystem and I think over the next five years it's only going to get bigger yes is it say I think it was maybe Kimball Musk who said food is the next um, internet do you do you really think it's um, this it's going to grow in that pace and make that kind of an impact and to what extent do you think indoor farming will will play a role in the next few years yeah i certainly share his excitement i think that you know we it's it's hard to tell as always right it's like when you become vegan then you're like oh everyone's becoming vegan because you're ve reading like this vegan news and you're reading this you know so it, it's hard to say if i'm objective but i do think that you know we see more and more businesses now getting involved in the food space food tech um, like farming as the root of all of our produce is of course like probably the most important part of that and I'm you know personally I'm way more excited when I see a new indoor farming startup than when I see a new food delivery startup you know uh, because like that is so fundamental and if we can fix some of the problems with agriculture mm -hmm. 
you know, hopefully that flows through to healthier food and a better environment and less waste and, you know, all those kind of things. So I, I certainly agree with Kimball in the sense that it's fundamental and it's exciting and uh, there's huge strides to be made there. Um, and, and one of the things that makes me the most excited about it is that it's a real thing. You know, and I'm so happy that uh, I'm part of a company and part of a movement which is about building real things that pe- real people eat. You know, it's not like a tertiary service on top of a Twitter ecosystem on top of this. It's like it's the food that we put in our mouths. And that's uh, it's both exciting, but also crucial. Uh, and that's that's why it is. It is the new Internet that I say. Yeah. You're not trying to create a new food that is never that's, you know, that's never been made before using ingredients that don't you get know, me started on Soylent. Are like, questionable. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, as, as exciting as um, food tech from that perspective is, at the end of the day, the, the basics of health haven't changed and nutrition haven't changed. You just eat more, more vegetables and fruit and, and try to eat more real food. And, and I think what's exciting about this space is, yes, the hype is, I think, worth hyping because the end product at the end of the day is what people should be eating right uh it's real food and um and as long as we can bring that to more people in parts of the country that find it tough to get access to good food i've never tasted a a microgreen and actually tasted any flavor in it versus some some bland salad that they probably tried before that's that's a problem worth solving so you know i think that's that's really exciting I think that's also a great note for us to probably wrap this up, but um, because I can go on about this, I think we can go deeper on any one of these multiple topics and hopefully we will get a chance to do that down the line. But um, I really appreciate you taking the time today and, you know, covering quite a vast ground from everything from the basics to where this potentially goes. And I think we're, as you pointed out, at the starting point of um, what's hopefully going to be a um, indoor farming revolution um, and a real food revolution that's being led in urban areas where people seem to be migrating anyway. So thanks for your time today and um, any any final words before we end on Farm One or just the future of food? No, I would just say try more plants and try some things that you haven't had before. Go to the farmer's market, try an her- a, a herb that you've never had, try some flowers, like be experimental. Like that's that's exciting it gets you more involved with the food it gets you to know the farmers and uh and and it's just fun like food is fun and let's keep it that way all right thanks rob and my goal is going to be to make sure that i get your help in setting up some sort of a indoor farming a successful indoor (laughs) farming operation in our office here in the near future great you got a deal thanks a lot (laughs) all right take care thanks a lot You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.